Hello and welcome to an exclusive podcast brought to you by VJ Oncology at this year's virtual 2021 ASCO Genitourinary Cancer Symposium, a wide range of exciting prostate cancer clinical trial data was presented. Today, we welcome a panel of four leading experts in prostate cancer who will be discussing these advances. Neil Shaw from the Carolina Urologic Research Center in South Carolina is joined by Bertrand Tombal of the San Luke University Hospital in Belgium, Rana McKay from the University of California, San Diego Health, and Robert Jones from the University of Glasgow and Beeston West of Scotland Cancer Centre. The experts will be exploring their key highlights from the data presented at ASCO GU and considering the implications of this data on clinical practice. To start us off, we'll be gaining some exclusive insight into the updated results from the ACES clinical trial. So I'll hand you over to the experts for today's podcast brought to you by VJ Oncology. Uh, welcome, everybody. What a, a, a great pleasure for me to have this uh, opportunity to talk with my colleagues internationally, uh, Bertrand Tombal, Rob Jones, uh, Raina McKay. They'll introduce themselves. This is an international small faculty. I'm Neil Shore. Uh, I'm here in the U.S. And, and what we're going to talk about is what were some of the highlights at uh, ASCO GU 2021 this year. Uh, we all had to attend virtually. And there, there was some great data. There was some really interesting science, uh, some of it controversial, some not, some things that are going to be potentially practice changing. Uh, maybe there's going to need to be some more trials and more evidence, but we'll have a roundtable discussion uh, and we'll ask the, the faculty, what were the key trials and, and key presentations that they found compelling? And, and certainly wanna hear uh, any of their own work that was presented. So uh, with that, I'm Neil Shore. I'll just be kind of moderating and, and, and letting this distinguished panel do most of the speaking. I'm a urologist in, in the US and, and run the Carolina Urologic Research Center. Uh, let me uh, hand it over to you and Bertrand, then Rob, then Reina. Okay, so hi, so I'm uh, Bertrand Tombal. I'm a urologist in uh, Brussels, Belgium, and I'm pleased to be with you uh, today. Uh, I'm Rob Jones. I'm a medical genitourinary medical oncologist in Glasgow in the UK. And I'm uh, Raina McKay. I'm a genitourinary medical oncologist in uh, California at UCSD. So Raina, let me ask you, uh, you know, gosh, I think for so many of us, our last meeting that we all went to live was literally a year ago at ASCO GU in California. And, and I'm sure you were really busy then. And I'm, I know you were busy at this meeting. Uh, maybe just to just kick things off, what, what, um, what one or two uh, presentations uh, were really caught your eye this year at ASCO GU, and especially if you were involved with them? Wonderful. Thank you. It was actually just such a robust meeting where there was just a lot of uh, new data getting presented. And I think across the board, um, including bladder and kidney, there was a total of four phase threes that read out, which is just pretty remarkable to have that much um you know, progress happening in the field. Um, I think probably the the highest level data that got presented, I guess the newest data was probably from the ASICS trial that was presented by uh, Dana Rathkoff. Um, basically, this study was looking at the combination of abiraterone plus apalutamide versus abiraterone alone in the CRPC space, mirrored very much a similar trial that was actually conducted through the alliance led by Dr. Michael Morris, looking at abiraterone and zalutamide in this context. And um, the trial's primary endpoint was radiographic progression-free survival. And um, it did, uh, the combination did demonstrate an improvement of RPFS. However, we did not see a signal for improved overall survival um, with the combination. And, um, you know, the, the, the utility of combination therapy in the CRPC space, I think is, really limited. Um, you know, there, there is certainly increased toxicity with the combination. So, you know, I thought that this data armed, um, the data from the Alliance study and probably, you know, we should not be using the combination together in the CRPC setting. Um, you know, I think in summary. Yeah, I appreciate that. Interesting. You know, that I was part of that. Maybe all of you were too. And and the, the interim analysis, the first analysis was about a six month RPFS, the final analysis of 7.2. And I would say for me, disappointingly, that the OS wasn't statistically significant. Um, you know, trying to combine this sort of concept of, of androgen access annihilation, you know, it, it, you know, impacting the AR as well as, you know, ligand stimulation. Uh, Rob Bertrand, what were your thoughts on the ASICS data? 
I'd agree that they're clearly not practice changing, um, at least not in the UK where I work. Uh, so to my mind, actually, um, almost the more surprising thing was that you were getting a signal on PFS, uh, because it does suggest that there is biological, at least additive, so some degree of additive activity. Um, and I suppose it, um, it poses two questions, because clearly these drugs are available. Uh, they're not licensed in combination, but they're, they're available to prescribe. Uh, and so I guess it would be really interesting to hear from uh, you two on the other side of the Atlantic as to whether you think that actually there will be anybody choosing to use these in combination, um, just despite the data. And I guess the other question it really poses is, you know, what does this mean for using uh, RPFS as a, as a surrogate endpoint in future trials in MCRPC? Uh, because I think we've all sort of rather held that that's been a, quite an important step forwards. Actually, when I saw the result of the trial, I went back to the result of the plateau trial, where actually, you know, the idea was the same. It was kind of switching versus adding. And then uh, start to look at most of the uh, modern trial where Abby or Enza was used as the comparator. And it's funny that you almost have like two to three months on PFS, which I really believe is like, you know, it's all like an epiphenomenon. You know, you, you don't really care about that. And uh, I, I think that overall, these were great ideas. We had when the drug came on the market, when uh, people, you know, you remember people like Chris Logotitis was dissecting their specific mode of action. But in the end, they're twin sister and brother. So uh, I think there's been a lot of uh, discussion about second PFS and all of that. So to me, uh, we, we still don't have the real one, which has been, you know, kind of uh, starting with the combo versus a sequence. And in the end, I, I think that with more options coming on, this will naturally disappear. And it's true that uh, in country like uh, I live in, in, in Europe, more and more there are questions from reimbursement authorities about should we really allow to get a second line of AR-targeted therapy when we see the price, because the price is very high. The value is very low if you combine if you give it. So I think that it will disappear with all the modern, uh, when we're going to get more agent, that kind of discussion will naturally disappear. So I, I, that's a really important point. You know, we talk about this in, in so many international meetings. Uh, I think the APCCC has really made a point of addressing more prominently issues of accessibility or uh, global disparities. Uh, let's transition uh, for, uh, to, to the whole notion around the, the, uh, the, the, the three phase three NMCRPC trials, talking about use of, 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 of new drugs that all received approval in, within the last two years. And then in 2020 at, at ESMO and ASCO and now at ASCO GU, we also had presentations on uh, final analyses and crossover uh, of the, the of the Spartan Prosper and Aramis trials, and as you as you mentioned that uh, uh, Bertrand, I was thinking to myself, uh, and and Rob, you as well too. You, you, this notion of RPFS is it no longer uh, going to be an acceptable uh, metric for approval, and a, a big part of the. MFS um, uh, um, interim analysis, the first analysis in those three trials, Prosperous, Spartan, and Aramis, I think many of our colleagues were saying, you know, expensive new drug, maybe there's toxicity. Um, why would I want to use this? But then we saw the OS data that resonated very strongly, I thought, in, in, in 2020. And again, Kim Chi had a presentation on, on uh, uh, you know, looking at, at Titan, different study, MCSBC. But uh, I presented uh, a crossover analysis looking at four different uh, uh, statistical metrics of the crossover for Aramis, demonstrating that it had a really minimal dilutive effect and that the overall survival benefit, despite a crossover uh, in the placebo group to, of about 30%, was real. So maybe, Rain, I'll start with you. What, what, or NMCRPC, uh, wh where do you stand on this? I mean, is this, is this a game changer? Is this... And, and also maybe also comment and on, on where the role of next generation imaging. 
Yeah, no, it's, it's, it, it definitely is a very, these three studies are landmark studies that have definitely, that are definitely practice changing. There is no doubt about that. I think um, the field of metastatic of uh, N, um, uh, NMCRPC is, uh, you know, dwindling as uh, we're now have um, PSMA PET that's been FDA approved and is likely over the next year going to become further commercialized and further available for our patients. So I think we're going to be detecting disease um, a lot earlier, detecting oligometastatic disease. And there was actually a, a wonderful presentation by Declan Murphy regarding the good, the bad, and ugly of PSMA. It is here to stay. Um, and it's just figuring out how to actually integrate it in, into clinical practice in a in a manner that actually is aligned with clinical evidence. Because I think people are just doing a lot of things without evidence. But I do think the three studies are practice changing. And I completely agree with you, Neil, that I think without the overall, seeing the overall survival benefit across the three studies is really, um, is really what made these studies practice changing. You know, you're not just delaying the time to mess, you're actually making people live longer. And that matters. And I think, you know, when people are on these trials, they're on therapy for three to four years, these therapies work for a long time. So it's not inconsequential to put somebody on a therapy for that prolonged a period of time, if you're not actually gonna make that individual live longer. Um, so uh, I, I do think that the updated Titan data was good to see and confirm that yes, the overall survival data was positive. So I, I do think these are practice changing. Cool. I think that there, there is, a, at least in Europe, there is a misconception when people say the drug were approved on MFS. Actually in Europe for the three, uh, for the three drugs and the three company EMA say, you know, we, we would like to speak about MFS plus. So meaning, what is the meaning of MFS? And I remember at meeting at EMA where they say, you know, we know the drug, we know Enza, we know APA, nothing new, huge benefit on PFS. Could you justify that actually what you call MFS is really a benefit for the patient beyond just simply a bone scan turning on? And uh, the tree works on that concept of MFS plus, which actually is recognized by ESMO in their rate of... Uh, of uh, rating of the drug activity. And I mean, it's not only delaying progression, it's living a long period of time without any having any deterioration in quality of life with drugs that are accessible. So I think that there was a part of the, uh, there was a part of the physician that were already convinced by that MFS, but really the home run was that you had three trials that came with uh, with the benefit in overall survival. And also something very important is that we're not speaking about non-metastatic CRPC. We're speaking about high-risk non-metastatic CRPC. People with a rapid PSA doubling time. And those like in my country who, who, who use uh, PET, we, we have PET PSMA since seven years, whole body MRI since 2005. We know that a vast majority of these patients actually are already metastatic. So we are speaking about low volume metastatic disease with rapidly progressing PSA. And it makes sense that if you start an, an active agent, you're gonna keep the patient for a longer period in a good state and you're gonna live longer. But I think it's important and that's, I think modern imaging may play a role in the, in the low kinetic non-metastatic CRPC. But for the other one, to me, the real question is if you're on ADT and your PSA start to doubling every six weeks, why do you need an imaging? I mean, you, you, you sh we know you should st start something, something. And maybe the imaging will add something else. But I think that we, we know these are poorly, poor prognostic patient and it's not a surprise that they live longer and better if we start the drug rapidly. At least that's my view. Latron, do you not think that actually we're, we're, we're maybe focusing on the wrong, the wrong thing here? Because you know, we know in M1 disease, de novo M1 does yeah. know that you really accentuate the impact of ADT by giving one of these newer hormonal drugs. You know, we've got Latitude, Stampede, Arches, Enzymet, uh, Titan showing this. So actually, if we, we, we should be spotting these guys, these guys who become the high-risk M0 CRPC. Exactly, yeah. Spot them before we castrate them. We could then be treating them probably even more actively at the get-go. And so actually that's maybe where the, where the modern imaging might really come in to help us actually target these patients so that they're actually getting more potent androgen-depriving therapy from the start. 
Well, it's interesting that some of the conversations that I've been part of, I know you all have as well, when you look at next generation imaging and particularly the, you know, the PSMA PET um, juggernaut, which is really, I think, going to just explode globally. I mean, we have countries that have had it for years and years, and it's, it's finally going to uh, you know, uh, get accessibility in the US by this summer, and I think in many other countries, uh, certainly many countries in, in, in Europe and in Australia have been way ahead of us for years for various reasons. But when I looked at that paper that um, I think Boris Hadishak is the senior author, when they looked at a, uh, the, the Spartan Prosper Aramis population, 200 patients in, in, uh, in uh, Scand five or six countries, Scandinavia, Canada, and, and, and Europe, and they basically that same PSA doubling time, less than 10 months, NMCRPC group, where 55% had disease outside of the pelvis, as opposed to the conventional imaging. You know, what do you think about that, Bertrand? Because, and that was a group that had the same criteria for the SPA, Spartan Prosper, Aramis trial. Some of our colleagues, I, I think, are, are, are thinking, you know, maybe there will be a different systemic therapy approach, or maybe there will be a role for SBRT, you, or maybe combination. How do you- SBRT to me, that's actually actually all reading as a as a different efficacy in, in men which are not castration resistant and in men who have castration resistant. We know that radiation oncologists know that. I don't think that uh, uh, and I think that alone, uh, and that's my worry. My worry is that you have you no know, uh, people who showed up, they have an aggressive cancer, they're progressing rapidly but they get a PET PSMA and they've got two lesions. And then they receive stereotactic radiation therapy instead of starting one of these uh, anti-androgen. And personally, I believe this is wrong. I believe that there's a great role to make many hypotheses, such as combining with stereotactic ablative radiotherapy and then pausing the AR-targeted therapy, looking at shorter course, intermittent use, but not simply replacing, because you're replacing something that may work versus level three, level one evidence from three trial. So I think that to me, it is a game change. And there is no reason, I mean, it is wrong to assume that those you see something on the PET PSMA have a worse prognosis than those who have a normal PET PSMA. Nobody know that. We have tested the diagnostic accuracy of PET-PSMA, but not a prognostic value. We cannot say that because a PET-PSMA is negative, despite the fact that they have a rapid uh, PS, a very short PSA doubling time, they have a better prognosis than those who have one, two, three. That, that, we can't say that. So it will generate more clinical trial, but today it is wrong uh, it is wrong to say, I do a PET-PSMA, and if it's negative, or if there's one or two metastatic deposit, I can do something else. Well, let's, let's stay in the theme of game-changing uh, uh, milestones in, in, in prostate uh, malignancies. Uh, let, let's talk about you know, PARP inhibitors. And let's, let's talk about the fact that at least in, 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 by EMA and FDA, there were, was approval for uh, uh, at the very uh, uh, consolidated use of B BRCA1 and 2 for patients who are MCRPC who progressed on a novel hormonal agent. There was a, an, a nice presentation uh, by Johan de Bono and the entire profound team of a gene by gene analysis looking at that cohort B. Uh, um, Rob, let me ask you, and then and then maybe Raina, you. I'd like to love to have you follow up what Rob's comments. Where are PARP inhibitors for prostate cancer in terms of the UK for approval, and uh, what are your thoughts about their role? Uh, do you do you agree that it's a game changer to have a, a PARP inhibitor for MCRPC? So I think so. I'll tell you where we're at. So uh, the marketing authorization um, has is, is there since um, end of 2020. Um, the access in UK NHS is not there yet. Hasn't had payor acceptance. Hasn't been rejected, but it hasn't been through the process yet. Um, I think um, they, this this drug is a game changer. 
the reason that the main reason it's a game changer though actually is because it brings genomics in for patients with prostate cancer and that opens up a pandora's box of opportunity part inhibitors being the first one of those opportunities but we've already seen others others coming temptingly close um, but of course that is also the real challenge because even if the nhs in the uk agrees to pay for a laparib tomorrow um, we don't really have the full infrastructure to deliver the genomics to make it happen. We've got the full infrastructure. I can the pharmacy. I can get it off the pharmacy shelf, but until I know which patients to give it to, um, that's not terribly helpful. Uh, one of the really encouraging things from this meeting was, of course, we saw both from Profound but also from other studies, we saw some some really really nice data about circulating tumor DNA and its ability to, um, to, 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 to reveal somatic um, mutations in DNA repair genes. And so actually this brings the whole thing a bit closer, hopefully. So Raina, what's the teaching now? Uh, I, I, I pretend you're, I, I, I think what, what Rob said is just spot on. I love the fact that this landmark trial to date, the only phase three trial, prospectively done, globally conducted, clearly demonstrates the benefit of olaparib. Uh, this really, you know, PARP inhibitor, that which we know has been uh, efficacious in breast and ovarian and pancreatic cancer, now it brings it to prostate cancer, where that's where we all live in the prostate cancer world. But, but Raina, what is the teaching that Rob wants to see and Bertrand and I want to see, and what are you doing for your residents and fellows how, because that to me is right now a, a real a limiting factor. So many of our colleagues are like, uh, they just are, not, are confused by how to test, when to test, germline, somatic. Maybe, could you comment on that? Absolutely. I mean, I, I completely agree that this trial was landmark because it was, it's bringing precision medicine to prostate cancer. And I think it's, you know, exciting to see the hepatosurtive data as well, because I think this is just part of that whole entire theme. Um, but I do agree with you. I think this is going to be a huge shift in practice because, um, you know, now that, you know, um, there are guidelines for germline testing for men with prostate cancer and not just people who are metastatic, people with localized high risk, you know, the NCCN in, in the U.S. has come down with recommendations for testing those individuals and even some intermediate risk patients who may have a family history or have introductal carcinoma and some of those the majority of those patients are, are in practice being followed by um, urologists or being seen by urologists or even radiation oncologists. So one, there's huge teaching that needs to be had regarding, well, how do we, how do we roll this out systematically? Um, you know, there's a, a great shortage of um, genetic counselors and some centers are just not resourced with genetic counselors. And so this really puts the onus on the actual like clinician. You can't just do your pre and post test counseling with genetics anymore. So I think some of that has to be done with within the context of the practice, you know, who, how to appropriately screen. And that's just the germline piece. And then I think the other piece with regards to somatic tumor testing, I think any man with advanced prostate cancer, metastatic, you know, advanced disease, not just CRPC, but advanced prostate cancer should undergo somatic tumor profiling. And what we learned from profound was actually, um, you know, uh, while there is, enrichment in the primary in that I think 86% or something like that of patients that were enrolled in profound had genomic profiling done off their primary prostate specimen. You do miss some individuals just because the prostate is negative doesn't mean that that somebody couldn't have developed an acquired mutation. And some people, you know, they, they may have had their prostatectomy 10 years out. It may not, they, there may not be viable DNA there. So I think there needs to be teaching around, well, how do we do somatic tumor profiling? And then what's the right method? You know, tissue, do you get a biopsy? Do you do cell-free DNA? If you got a bone met only patient, how the heck do you get the bone to process? And so I think there's a huge, um, you know, uh, educational piece that needs to be had. And, and quite honestly, I actually think that our industry partners need to help in facilitating that educational component in addition to, you know, the community and academia and guidelines associations, because I think that, you know, there's no way to get a lap rib to a patient unless somebody orders the right test in the right individual. And so there needs, the two need to be completely linked. So you can't, you can't have one without the other. Yeah, what, what you say is funny because uh, I met with a company like 
you know, AZ to be uh, precise. And they say, you know, you guys remember when you came with EGFR inhibitor in lung cancer, you realized when the drug was already on the market that basically there was no market because you hadn't teach pneumologists to do a proper biopsy and to look for EGFR mutation. And it was so slow that they wouldn't wait and they, they would give chemotherapy, you know, when they came with first line EGFR, great study, but no result. And I say, you haven't learned no lesson because we are now 10 years down the line. Everybody know about Olaprip, but you ask a general urologist, how do you get a patient on Olaprip? He know how to do the prescription, but he has no idea what to ask, what tissue, when to do it. There's a huge confusion between uh, germline testing and genetic concerning. So we, we told them, I mean, every country has to get organized so that we, we I think that organizations such as EAUSMO are trying to come to practical recommendation because there is also cost issue. If you send like the prostate and you got a whole genome sequencing on the prostate and it's negative, you're going to have to repeat the test on the new biopsy. So we, we really need to sort this out or it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a huge mess because people will simply be incapable of ordering the good, the good test to the good person. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think what's very um, encouraging to me is the, the floodgates have opened in all these companies and the competitive nature now of this biomarker uh, segment of genomic profiling is really good for all of us. So uh, it will clearly lower the cost. I mean, you look at germline testing uh, a decade ago, was, it was in the order of thousands of, of US dollars. And now it's down to just a couple of hundred US dollars. Uh, I think similar, similarly, we'll see that same uh, competitive uh, market pressure on somatic tissue testing, as well as uh, somatic liquid testing. But one of the things that you all said that really is, I think is important, uh, it, it, it's here we have medical oncologists and urologists speaking together. We, we, we certainly would typically always benefit from a radiation oncologist, um, but we need to start thinking about incorporating our interventional radiologists and our pathologists. They've really become quite key into this multidisciplinary team and figuring out how we're going to perform and get great tissue integrity making sure that we're not wasting tissue samples and moving forward. Because as you were saying earlier, Bertrand, whether, you know, getting back to combining an ARPI with you know, shorter durations, intermittent use, it's all about sort of precision and tailored medicine, you know, and, and I think that's really the, the, what the future holds. So, you know, with that comment, let me, let me go to a third area. I have two more game changers to bring up to you. There are probably others, and I want to hear if you have, if I miss them, please, please let me know. Um, the next one is the, the Theranostics and targeted radiopharmaceuticals. Rob, where do you, where do you think that what's going to happen? And, and uh, let me start with you regarding uh, maybe potentially the, the first big phase three that may read out, well, should read out this year, the vision trial. And this is about PSMA lutetium as a therapy, but obviously that's linked to uh, gallium PSA PET as a, as a diagnostic and moreover actually as a predictive marker. And you're right, we don't yet have the results of the vision trial. We hope we'll get them sometime in 2021. And of course, that's a randomized phase three trial, essentially in patients who've run out of options because the control arm was essentially best supportive care. You were allowed to have active agents such as crossover and zalutamide or laboratorone. Um, uh, and the primary endpoint, or co-primary endpoints of RPFS, but also overall survival. Again, as we said before, the overall survival, I think, is really important to me in that trial. So we don't have the results of that yet. Uh, what we did get at this meeting, though, was the results of a randomized phase two trial. Uh, and this was the therapy study, which was a multi-center Australian trial um, comparing PSMA lutetium with cabazitaxel. Uh, and I think this is a really important trial, uh, obviously, dependent on the positivity of vision, um, because although it's only a phase two trial, so it's, it's quite a large, there's 100 patients in each arm, um, 
the um, it, it's 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 compared. It's got a, it's got an active comparator, and I think that will really add to the understanding of this drug and our understanding of its potential position in the therapeutic pathway. Um, uh, the trial's primary endpoint was PSA response rate, and you saw uh, a, 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 about a doubling of PSA response rate. That is more than 50% reduction compared with cabazitaxel. Um, but it also showed quite encouraging um, uh, quite encouraging hazard ratio for RPFS. I think it was 0.63. Um, and so, you know, really, I think this is uh, for the first time we're now seeing this drug showing that it's got not just activity, we already knew that, but activity that really might have an important place uh, in the therapy of prostate cancer. My one caution on it was, is that actually the way the patients were selected, it was a little bit more stringent than just doing the PSMA PET scan because the patients also had uh, uh, FDG PET scan and you were excluded from the trial if you had discordant disease, which means if you had disease which was FDG avid but was not PSMA avid. So even if, the, even if other disease was PSMA avid, if you had FDG only disease present, you would be excluded from the trial. So this is quite a stringently selected population in this trial. Yeah, great point. Great work by Michael Hoffman. And that's, uh, it, it's really it hopefully be remarkably supportive to the, the vision trial readout. Reina, what are your thoughts on, you know, the, this, this burgeoning field of theranostics and radio, targeting radiopharmaceutical antibody conjugates if the latissimum is a beta, there's a lot of work going on in alpha molecules. Yeah, no, I think it's incredibly exciting. I think it's going to definitely change um, the field. I think uh, hopefully if the vision trial reports out positive, I think there's been a lot of tremendous enthusiasm behind PSMA targeted theranostics as like the say all end all be all. Um, but I, I think we probably need to temper some of that. I think they're probably going to be another therapy um, that, hopefully will be effective for patients, but I think there's going to, um, I think it's essentially what's coming to the field. I think the other piece, just as we talked about with the genomics is going to be, how do you actually make this a reality, you know, to be available at centers across the world? Um, you know, I think radio pharmaceuticals can be challenging. You're working with um, a nuclear medicine department or a radiation oncology department. I think look at the rollout that happened with radium. Um, so I think that there's, you know, if, the vision trial is positive and, and I, I think there's going to be a, a huge kind of lag with actually making this a reality to, for patients. And um, so, um, you know, and I think it's going to shift the landscape because I think if, if PSMA, um, you know, if, if the trial is positive, I think we're probably going to be seeing a phasing out of radium in, in clinical practice. There are some interesting hurdles though. And one is uh the fact that you have to carefully select a patient. If you send somebody to, for instance, uh, Dusseldorf, when they have the, uh, they always do a PET PSMA, PET FDG. And if the patient has any FDG positive, PSMA negative, they won't treat him. And that's the key to success. There are very interesting paper in European nuclear medicine recent that show that actually your response rate to PSMA lutetium, if you have FDG positive, PSMA negative. Uh, and if you look at the Hoffman trial, it's always very, be, it's always been very careful on this. And actually there is, on, there is always one third, 30% of the patient that get excluded because they have, or, or they have low PSMA uh, expression or FDG positive. So my, my worry once again is that, uh, I worry that the message may be diluted uh, in the, amongst people and that they believe that because you have a positive PET PSMA, you will respond to PET PS, to PSMA lutetium or other drug. This is not true. You need to have a PSMA exclusive patient. And, and, and that's something we, we're gonna, as academic, we, we're gonna have to be guardian of this. We, 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 we have to secure that. But we're going to have to work with the nuclear medicine specialists as yes. well. And I really worry that we don't have the capacity in the UK to deliver the, yeah. particularly the diagnostic part, actually delivering the, ther the, the, the therapy part. I think we can do that. Yeah. Uh, it'll have its challenges, but I, I, I worry that, that getting the yeah. diagnostics right will be a challenge. I'd be interested in your views, uh, Neil and Rainer, in, in the US, uh, 
Yeah. In terms of nuclear medicine capacity. You know, I, I think about the, the PSMA and the FDG avidity. I think it's going to be one difficult to actually be able to get two nuclear medicine scans performed for any given patient. And quite honestly, you know, I, just because somebody has positive FDG disease, you know, when we look at genomic drivers, we don't necessarily exclude people that have alternate drivers of disease. Like, look, like, look at, you know, the story with PARP inhibitors. Like, you know, if you had some other driver alteration, you weren't necessarily excluded from receiving a PARP inhibitor. So I think it just speaks to the, you know, not to say how homogeneous. I do agree that I think people that are that are purely PSMA positive are probably better apt to respond. But um, if you're not, are we going to actually exclude a therapy? You know, some of these men, you know, they're, they're getting their drugs earlier, you know, they've gotten their AR antagonist, they've gotten their dose of taxol or chemo, and they still feel very well. They have a good performance status and you're kind of run out and got, running out of options. And so, um, you know, I, I, I may be a little bit more lenient around the exclusion of FDG positivity in somebody that may have, you know, PSMA and FDG avid disease. I'd like to see that data kind of teased out a little bit more. Yeah, I, I, I think there's going to be some practical challenges to doing that. Uh, I know that in, in a lot of the trial designs that I'm seeing currently, uh, I think by just getting a, a, a comparator CT scan, bone scan in conjunction uh, may solve that problem. You know, it, it remains to be seen. But Rob, to your point, uh, bringing the nuclear medicine uh, uh, specialty in, in the U.S., Outside of academic nuclear medicine, the community nuclear medicine physicians have really exclusively dwelled in the diagnostic realm. And I think this is a great opportunity to also enhance the multidisciplinary aspects here, to really step it up. Uh, that'll have to happen. Um, let me um, you know, transition this, this issue of, let's assume uh, a radiopharmaceutical antibody conjugates get approved and, 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 and sort of maybe also asking you to think about this in terms of the PARPs now, uh, specifically Olaparib and in, in some countries Recaparib. What about combination uh, of, of the, 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 you know, the PARPs with an AR pathway drug? A lot of those, a lot of phase three trials happening there. And then also arguably the ARPIs with uh, radiopharmaceutical conjugates. It kind of makes pretty good sense in terms of tolerability, but you know, how, what do you think about that, Bertrand? I think um, one of the problem is that you, you need to be sure you don't mess with the PSMA expression. And that's, as you know, with AR pathway inhibitor, we don't have yet extremely good studies showing what is the, uh, what is the kinetic of PSMA expression during the early phase of treatment with the ARPI. So, I think that we, we, we have a tendency, uh, we, we haven't learned from the past again, and we, we throw phase three based on, uh, oh, there is two great drugs, let's combine them, boom. And uh, you remember, we've done that with docetaxel, and to my knowledge, it hasn't succeeded one time. So yeah. uh, we- Yeah, yeah the, Arisen, the Arisen's trial will read out later this year, who knows? No, yeah, yeah, maybe that would be the first one. But you know, we have to be um, we have to be careful uh, with PSMA expression, uh, and maybe do. Uh, we wrote an editorial with Johan de Bono on this. Johan wrote a beautiful paper on uh, the relationship between PSMA and DNA repair. So uh, yes, it makes sense. But uh, PSMA is a tricky drug because it's really linked to the PSMA expression, and we don't know really. What is the kinetic when you combine with an ACTA? So once again, we're going to have to see uh, what it does. My worry is that exactly like radium, people will start to combine without any uh, evidence. And uh, we, 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 we managed to have, uh, you know, pretty bad surprises when we did that. So we have, I think the ERA223 trial should remain a good example that you take two good drugs, you end up with major catastrophe. But there is some, I mean, I think though we do need some intelligent combinations. Exactly. And I think yeah. um, actually, you know, with theranostics, therapeutic major nuclides, you know, there is a real opportunity there because there's a lot of potential to synergize with radiation. Um, 
which has not been particularly well exploited with conventional major therapy in my view in the past. Um, and so if we can really bring intelligent preclinical design and then intelligent trial design to that, we might be able to make a real difference here. And I think the, the PARP inhibitors are, are a potential, you know, because there's a strong rationale for combining them with radiation. Um, and we did see, uh, actually, we did see the results of the Lupin trial, which was a phase one, two trial combining lutetium with another radio sensitizer. I mean, these were, in my view, they were encouraging early data too early to really um call it out yeah. but um uh you know and but it's nice to see that kind of intelligent that kind of intelligent approach to combinations going on yeah i think to piggyback on that we actually had a um a trial in progress of the combination of elaparib and radium that just completed phase one and we'll be transitioning into phase two and i do think that the toxicity is something that we're going to have to pay close attention to um you know uh with the myelosuppression that we see with radio pharmaceuticals the myelosuppression of, of um radium and and um uh and elaparib and now these you know these patients are ever so more heavily pretreated. that i think the bone marrow toxicity can become a real problem well, thanks. That's great, great conversation. Let, let's go to another area that I, I, I don't want to be, you know, overly um, hubristic about it, but I, I think it was a game changer and, and maybe I'll be quiet. I'll just introduce it. Bertrand was part of this paper in this trial too. We, it was the HERO trial. And, and we had a, uh, that was the, the Relagolix versus LH, LHRH agonist therapy uh, for patients with advanced prostate cancer metastatic, biochemical relapse, locally advanced disease. Um, there was a, 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 a nice presentation. Dan George was the first author looking at the, the safety uh, and the efficacy of the, the, the two different arms, the oral relagolics, the GnRH antagonist versus LHRH agonist, uh, looking at the combination docetaxel, looking at it with enzalutamide and radiation therapy patients. But uh, let me ask you, um, uh, Rob and, and Rana, because uh, Bertrand is the uh, author on the paper alongside me, and, and take the gloves off. Tell us, tell us, you know, what you really think. Is an oral GnRH uh, antagonist one pill daily? Uh, if you if you've read that trial, is, is this a game changer? Raina, do you want to go first? Sure. I mean, I think it just is another available treatment option for patients. I mean, I think it was. Um, it's good to have it. Some patients don't like injection therapy. I think the um, cardiovascular data that were presented is provocative. Um, I think though the risk is, you know, there, though there seems to be a tremendous decline in the relative risk when you look at the absolute numbers of actually people who had cardiovascular events, I think it's, it's pretty low um, in both patients who had a prior CV versus not. Um, so I think it's great that we have this option. What my worry is, is we're going to start to extrapolate that data into patients getting definitive curative therapy with, um, you know, radiation and hormones. And how do we know that a more rapid rise in testosterone post-therapy completion isn't going to somehow affect efficacy outcomes in that context. Um, it was mainly tested in the hormone sensitive disease set, setting. So what's the role in CRPC? Is there any role in CRPC? And then now you're um, combining it with other drugs. And, you know, I think when you look at the drug compendium, you know, there's potential for drug-drug interactions with ENZA, there's potential for drug-drug interactions with Abby with QTC prolongation. Um, so I think we just don't really know. And I, I think it's going to just open up a can of worms of people being just saying, oh, it's just like Lupron. We're just going to use it whenever, wherever we would otherwise use that agent. And um, I, I think there's a little bit of caution that needs to be had around that. I guess well, let me, let's have Bertrand counter Arena and then, and then you, Rob. How's that? Bertrand, what do you think about Raina's commentary? No, I, I agree on something that my view on antagonist is that for a majority of patients, they, they probably just like Lupron. And then the problem is that we, we need to find, I think there is no benefit in uh, castration resistant. We've done trial with the Garalix and show there is no benefit. But there are a subset of patients which actually uh, may, I would say, in which the acute rise in testosterone and also more importantly, NLH and FSH, may be detrimental. And uh, there's a, a lot of work done, especially in Hamilton, Canada, 
on a patient with unstable arteriosclerotic plaque. We haven't yet fully identified this patient. These are the one we actually call a patient with previous cardiovascular disease, but saying that we have excluded from the trial anybody having a myocardial infarction within six months. Uh, so we have not taken the worst of the worst. So I think that in this patient, and the same to me for radiotherapy is uh, in patient with uh, uh, urinary symptoms. So we're trying to look at that. So I, I think that for the vast majority of patients, yet it's probably just another ADT, probably. There are benefits, I believe, in uh, for few patients to receive short course of hormone therapy, like six months and then stop. But we still have a lot of work to do to really identify those subgroup of patients that may benefit from an antagonist. And to me, the highest level of evidence today, although it's not yet fully phase one, level one, are those who suffer a myocardial infarction or a stroke within six months to one year, because there we have a we have a phase two done in Israel, beautiful small phase two by David Margell. So we, we have concording argument for that subgroup of patients. But the guy, which is uh, 72 years old, who has no comorbidity, who start with a metastatic cancer with uh, ADT plus ENZA, no, there's no benefit probably. Unless he has multiple cardiovascular yes. risks. Exactly. This is the one you would yes. you would give it. And, and, and I think there are some days where it seems like all of my patients have you know, numerous cardiovascular risks, but that may just be the, the doom of practicing in the Southeast part of the United States where obesity and hypertension and dyslipidemia and glucose dysregulation and prior, you know, uh, arrhythmia is, is really kind of very highly prevalent, but that just, that's kind of my own personal background. But Rob, what do you think? Yeah, I think uh, potentially living in Glasgow is of itself a cardiovascular risk factor. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, 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 I'm, I'm kind of with Rainer and, and Bertrand on this, really. I, I think it's a player in the game, but it's not a game changer. I would say that if we'd started off with a once daily castrating tablet, we probably wouldn't be striving to make a monthly or three monthly depot version of it. Um, so, you know, clearly once daily is a, fundamentally important concept. But I, I would share the concerns that Rainer raises that, you know, all of our evidence base really is based on using depot LHRH agonists by and large. And whilst the potential for losing those gains by switching to an oral, you know, and you're looking at combinations with radiation, combinations with other drugs, is relatively small. Actually, well, how much do we gain by doing that? So we, we need to be just cautious before we throw away um, the, 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 the convention too quickly. But yes, clearly there's groups of patients with who this will suit because they want oral therapy, maybe the ability to stop it quickly. Um, and of course, you know, the, 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 the growing interest in the cardiovascular risk patients. But to me, the big competitor in the segment we're speaking about, men who need short course hormone, is uh, the development you start seeing by using anti-androgen monotherapy. As you know, uh, in, in, and I think it's the same in the UK, uh, we, we've been using a lot of bicalutamide 150, and there's still a lot of patients treated with that one, a specific segment of low volume disease. And I think that to me, the number one challenge will be what we're going to do with anti-androgen and the Daro, uh, APA monotherapy in a few years. Maybe that actually my personal dream would be that one day we got rid of androgen deprivation therapy. Because when you think again, this is the uh, anti-precision medicine by definition. I mean, you, you suppress testosterone everywhere to get it working only in the prostate, at least at the low volume. So it's interesting. I, I agree with you, Bertrand. And I, 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 just to make an, an inappropriate uh, political analogy, it would be like the cancel culture. We'd have to get Huggins and Hodges out of all the papers. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It'd be terrible. You know, they're, they're, they're the pioneers of tea suppression. Uh, well, so with that, uh, let me just uh, thank you all. And let me go around one time. And uh, did, did, did we miss uh, any really major uh, things that we want our colleagues to be thinking about uh, I'm sure we did. I'm sure I did. So it's that would be my fault. Arena, any last uh, things for our colleagues who are listening to be thinking about from ASCO, GU, and prostate cancer? No, I think you really covered the the uh, clinical significant topics of uh, new therapies. I think 
um, uh, Johan de Bono presented some updated data from uh, the potential trial and some more elegant biomarker work. And, um, you know, I think I think we're still not 100 percent there. I think we kind of also want to see kind of an OS signal from that study. But it was interesting to also see the PI3K um, data get embedded, the AKT data get embedded. And I think that just speaks to where the field is going. But um, yeah, it was a super exciting meeting with a lot of, uh, uh, you know, uh, interesting topics addressed. Rob? I, I'd, I'd just like to put in a word for my radiation oncology colleagues here, because there were some, I thought there were some interesting results for ra about ra concerning radiation. Uh, we haven't got time to go into the detail, but uh, particularly there was um, some interesting work about using molecular prognosticators to maybe select patients with good prognosis who may not require androgen deprivation therapy in addition to the radiation therapy um, in the intermediate and, um, and high risk groups. Uh, and also um, potential to define a group of patients to, 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 to use molecular, um, molecular diagnostics to, to maybe intelligently select patients for adjuvant radiation after prostatectomy. I, I, because of the way that whole field's changing quite quickly, uh, the trials themselves don't immediately present those changes in practice, in my view. But I thought that was a real potential because I think that's a, a real issue, um, how, to, how to better choose patients for these treatments. Yeah, I love that you brought that up. We actually, Jonathan Tward was the first author. I was one of the many co-authors on a study we did looking at a CCR score, combining the CCP and, and the CAPRA. And it, it giving you an opportunity to think about a, a percentage of patients with either intermediate or high-risk disease who might not necessarily need ADT uh, with, with radiation treatment. So I, I agree with you. It wasn't a predictive marker, but it's the intelligent use of a prognostic marker. Yeah. To let men whose, whose additional benefit from quite morbid ADT uh, was so small that they may not choose to receive it. Yeah. Yeah, thanks. So clearly, we, we all agree on uh, the fact that removing ADT is an important target. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. Well, uh, any anything else did we miss, Bertrand? No, no, I think it was a great meeting, a lot of confirmatory results, and uh, a lot of work to be done in educating people on when and how. Well, I think with that final word, hey, thanks, uh, uh, Reina, Rob, Bertrand, thanks very much. And I, I look forward to seeing you at the virtual ASCO and maybe the in-person EAU still to be in-person and hopefully uh, in-person AUA and ESMO uh, and, and have a great 2021. Thank you, Neil. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you to our expert panel and to you for listening to this BJ Oncology Prostate Cancer Session. If you enjoyed the podcast today, please subscribe and leave a review. To keep up to date with hot topics in prostate oncology, visit vjoncology.com. Follow us on Twitter at vjoncology to join the conversation.